Sometimes the value is the future of your company. If you don't automate, then you won't have any business at all. And you do worry about death by a thousand cuts. So some people, for whatever reason, don't automate and they gradually lose market share and they gradually, slowly but surely, go out of business. Kia ora, I'm Troy, here as CEO and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Today our conversation is with Professor Chris Cook, who is the former Executive Dean of Engineering at the University of Wollongong in Australia. I first met Chris when I was working there myself as a Director of Commercial Research, and through the years I'm pleased to say that our friendship has endured. It's led to here a collaboration with the University's Facility for Intelligent Fabrication to deliver welding productivity and automation capability audits for some of our members. And most recently, our welding research engineer and automation innovation cluster leader, Holger Heinzel, spending two weeks there to gain hands-on experience with the latest technology. So Chris, maybe the place to start is with an overview of FIF. Yes. Um, one of the issues with uh, automation and, and robotics is the if it's new, companies are uh, worried about the risk involved in taking on a new technology. And so there's a need for companies to be able to try things out and measure things like cycle times and accuracies and so on without having to invest in half a million dollars worth of machinery. So what we do is we can do very rapid um, tests on companies' particular products, actual products and components. We can weld them with our robots and we can measure cycle times and measure accuracies uh, and they haven't had to buy anything. So we, we do charge for our time, but basically it's a de-risking uh, facility and also trying things out. So we can try out sensors, we can try out um, different robots, we can try out manipulators uh, without the company having to invest in an entire system. It's really until companies uh, see their own product being manipulated and welded, they don't really believe that it will happen. Mm-hmm. And so it gives people a lot of confidence that, yes, there is an automation system, yes, it will work, and it's not scary. It's certainly a model that we've been looking at for here as Innovation Centre. Yes. The um, myth of low-cost manufacturing, how does that impact on companies' adoption of automation? Well, I think the myth is to do with uh, there's low-cost labour in other countries in the world, so much lower than what we charge for in what we have to pay for labour in Australia and New Zealand, that uh, you should give it away and not do anything. Um, I think the, the counter to that argument is that that's the point of automation, that if you're adding enough value... And if you're smart about the way you make things, uh, you can develop a, um, a competitive edge which cannot possibly be matched just on the basis that somebody else in some other country is, has got low labour costs. So uh, I think that, that's the myth that really needs, that really needs uh, we need to get stuck into. Mm-hmm. Because if we persist with that, then we're going to give up. And 
even China doesn't believe in that myth. I mean, China has a bigger automation and uh, one of the, big, the world's biggest automation programs we've ever seen, and they uh, don't believe that low-cost labour is the way to go. So neither should we. Is there a sweet spot for automation in terms of niche versus volume? Yes, there, there, there unquestionably is. So you can't solve all problems of cost effectiveness or competitiveness with automation. So in Australia and I, and I assume New Zealand or you know in smaller countries, you can never beat volume manufacture or relatively low value added products. You just you just can't be in that game. So you have to be in the game of high value added. You have to be able to offer something that you, you can't offer uh, just with a low value labour and it's to do with flexibility, to do with smart products, it's to do with uh, uh, volume, responsiveness to customers and quality. Uh, so so obviously there are niches there. It's not going to be to do with very high volume. Mm -hmm. And what is the value of automation? What is it worth? Ah, well, that's a very good question. I mean, I, sometimes the value is the future of your company. If you don't automate, then you won't have any business at all. And you do worry about uh, death by a thousand cuts. So some people, for whatever reason, don't automate and they gradually gradually lose market share and they gradually, slowly but surely, go out of business. So, so, so the cost is a lot to do, can be a lot to do with the future of the company. On a pragmatic level, people, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of sophisticated discounted cash flows and others to value the cost of capital investment. But as a rule of thumb, most people aren't going to do anything without about a two-year payback. So, uh, and on, on multiple shift operation, that's often very easy to achieve with, with automation. On one single shift operation, that might be a bit harder. And you might have to build in other uh, savings, such as uh, savings in rework, improvements in quality, uh, and uh, improvements in reject rate and, and so on. And is there a smart way to do things? Uh, definitely. Um, it has to be a part of the company strategy. So so often only half-jokingly say, you know, heaven save us from, from a chief executive who's read an article about robots in a magazine somewhere and says, right, now we're going to modernise and we're going to buy a robot. That's almost doomed to failure because the robot... Putting a modern piece of machine in an old-fashioned factory won't help you. So the smart way is to say, well, have we have we got the market? What are what do our customers really want, and can automation provide it? And have we got the upstream and downstream processes in place, including the design process, designing for manufacture manufacturability, for example, and the suppliers in place that allow us to exploit automation. So automation. I mean, you can buy a robot from any one of about 700 companies and you can buy just about anything from anywhere, but is it going to work in an integrated sense in your factory for your market, for your workforce? So, yes. And speaking of workforce, the other smart thing is, or um, prerequisite, or essential thing to consider is the training. It does, it, you may not, uh, overall, you may not lose jobs, but you'll certainly change jobs. And so there is a training an ongoing training requirement with automation. What are some examples of automation in welding? 
Well, we've we go from the small to the large. So, for example, <clears throat> one system we so, so so what our history is we've been automating uh, products, particularly robotic uh, welding, in Australia for over twenty five years. So we've worked in just about every conceivable type of industry you can think of at one time or another. So there are relatively low-valued multi-station welding systems for things like, say, office furniture, office chairs and so on. Um, so the selling price of a <clears throat> steel frame chair might be you know, $18. So uh, the manufacturing price has to be an awful lot less than that. And uh, so if you're going to make them... But, but, but they've been shown to pay off. So if you're making enough office chairs, say a three-station welder with a single robot... Um, the problem there is the parts fit up because the tolerances of uh, of uh, the the parts that they're low value added. The tolerances aren't that good, so um, that's an example where you would probably, well, you'd have to pay attention to um, jigs and fixtures, or also use a video system to get that work, even though it's a low value added product. So that's an example of uh, a simple system. Uh, we've done very, and we've done uh, a spectrum of systems from simple to complex. The most complex we've done has been where one robot, uh, one large robot, is holding a welding robot, moving it into a confined space to do the welding. So you can imagine you've got, uh, you know, two multi-axis robots trying to do welding in a confined space. So using a human being to develop the welding paths is really out of the question because there's an infinite number of ways of doing the doing the world. So that was our first, uh, that was the driver for our development of automated offline programming where the robots program themselves. That particular uh, job was for the Bushmaster armoured vehicle, uh, which is made for the Australian military and sold and used around the world. It's essentially welding inside a, a very large metal box so it's a place where you wouldn't want a human being to be anyway and the worlds can be quite complicated and so finding the welding paths and optimising them is almost an impossible job for a human being but uh, the automated system not only did things quickly but uh, found better paths. Um, another example is quite interesting. I mean, that's two robots working, you know, one robot holding another one. We've done a, another system for um, devices for power stations to remove the soot from the air. And what, what this was, uh, what this looked like was essentially a very large metal fabrication, maybe 15 metres long, with uh, inch-thick plate still um, placed all the way along like a, like a ramp, like a louver system. And it was too wide for one robot to reach. So this was a system of two robots on a track uh, cooperating to weld uh, these very large inch uh, plate uh, sheets uh, to make up this uh, ladder for, for a precipitator. It's called a precipitator. And, uh, and that's a massive amount of welding consumables. And uh, you know the parts are all put in place with an overhead crane. But instead of people having to clamber over all this stuff and risk injury, the robots, uh, once programmed, could, could weld uh, cooperatively to make those uh, very, very large fabrications. So we've seen them used in all kinds of areas. Uh, we've, uh, for example, another system we did was also a tracked robot system, was uh, welding um, alu aluminium welding for stepladders. 
it turns out to be quite complicated because the ladders uh, have a V shape and the angles are all different for every step. And uh, again, uh, the programming of that can uh, is often the Achilles heel for a robot system. If you spend so much time programming it and you haven't got the volume, then the cost of making is very expensive. So, so the more automatic programming, vision-assisted programming a robot can do, the better. It seems like uh, there has been a bit of a resurgence in manufacturing within Australia, which yes. had definitely declined some six to ten years ago. Yes. But what does it... What does that look like for Australia? What has been the focus to rebuild the manufacturing and what would Australia look like without that manufacturing capability? Yes. I think uh, one of the, one of the, so there's a few attitudes of mind changes. One is um, you can't just make anything willy-nilly. You've got to think carefully about why you might have a competitive edge if you were to make something in Australia. And the competitive edge might be, uh, may well include not only what is needed in Australia, but what, what you might export. And, and what you might export is likely to be very high value added products, very quality driven, um, often in the biomedical area, like a mechanical heart, for example. The cost of manufacture of the heart's not really relevant compared with the fact that it's got to not go wrong and the surgery involved is outweighs the cost of the part anyway so so there are and as I say that's a niche product that we talked about earlier on that's a niche product but I think the other thing that has uh, trans potentially is transforming the industry is uh, once the robots can program themselves you take out the cost of programming which has been as I say the Achilles heel so that's another issue and I think another, a further issue is the realisation that um, uh, the, you, you're not necessarily trying to save labour salaries. You're definitely changing the nature of work, but you, you've, you, you're better off having a modern factory than no factory. And I think that realisation has, uh, you know, we've, we've seen car plants shut. We've seen uh, all kinds of uh, things change, but the world hasn't come to an end. And so I think that has made it more acceptable too mm -hmm. to the population generally. <laughs> if we um, step up into the bigger world of building and construction and move away from manufacturing, um, what is it that's happening in Australia around building and construction and multi-storey issues? Yes. Well, that's a sore point in Australia at the moment with uh, buildings in such poor condition that people have had to leave. And so there's a big question mark over quality and uh, what does a warranty mean and uh, who, who should pay and uh, uh, how, how, how's, a, how's the certification system got to such a terrible state that these second-rate buildings have been allowed to be constructed. From the automation point of view, of course, somebody like me with a vested interest would say, well, the more you prefabricate things before you get them on site, the higher the quality is going to be. And we are also in our uh, at our university. We are the home of the national um, steel hub, which is all about better and more exciting uses of steel. And so, steel and concrete and timber are all sort of at each other's throats in terms of competitive edges. And uh, uh, but there are uh, you know there are people who people are more and more thinking about well, how much can we prefabricate off-site? How can we get those accuracies so that when they're on site, it fits together? And uh, can we get steel into you know, six-storey buildings, which is what there's a lot of being built in Australia now, 
uh, still preeminence in you know, multi, you know, 20, 30 storey buildings as, um, exist now, but in six storey buildings, you can do it in lots of other ways. You don't need steel or as much steel. So there's a lot of research going on in uh, what can you do there, and a lot of it uh, led, in New led by New Zealand researchers, actually. So this New Zealand's already pretty advanced in that area. What are some of the innovations in site works that support innovation, um, automation? Um, so this is on-site, buildings on-site, yes. In some ways, that's the last bastion of, of non-automation because it's so unstructured, so hard to predict what's going to happen. And, you know, every time a truck arrives and puts a load somewhere, the site's all different. So hence, fabricating as much as possible off-site is one way to go. But there are technologies... Uh, available, you can you can have a, uh, a point cloud of your actual site and you can take measurements off that, send that back to the factory and make something that fits exactly what that situation is. Because no matter how good the design is or how many blueprints you have, it's never exactly that when it's on site. Um, I think we're seeing, we haven't got a lot of, a, lot of uh, examples where we can point to for that, but I think that's probably the way of the, the way of the future. You mentioned uh, earlier uh, the importance of it, uh, an automation strategic plan. Mm. What does the automation strategic plan look like? Well, it looks ahead. So one of the so Australia and New Zealand are both dominated by SMEs, and SMEs are, to stay alive have to be very worried about what happens next week and next month and uh, you know the next three months. But it's it's hard to take time out to say, well, where do we really want to be in five years, ten years, I think a plan looks long-term and it looks, it tries to see what the drivers are and it looks at it from the customer's point of view as much as from the manufacturer's point of view. So what will customers really want in the future? What will they pay for? What will they, uh, if, it's, if you're not producing sausages, you know, will they will they pay a premium, and how much of a premium for a specialised product, a more specialised product? Uh, will they pay for for quality that you can't get from Korea? Will they pay for delivery times which you can't get from overseas? Um, will they will they pay for being able to order at the last minute so they know it's exactly what they want rather than having to order three months in advance? So I think the customer's point of view has to be very much built into it. And then the factory itself, as I said earlier on, you can't modernise a factory by modernising one little bit of it. And it starts with the designer. So is it, are you designing for manufacturing, manufacturability? Um, are you designing, do you have an electronic link between the design and the machines? Or is it worth establishing that electronic link? Because most factories have a legacy ancient machines, but they do the job they were designed for, and some modern machines, well, how much how much do you update everything? Are the savings there to do that? Um, and I think there are other trends which we need, we don't pay much attention to, uh, and I've just, as a result of uh, uh, other work I'm doing in New Zealand, interviewed quite a few people from industry on industry advisory committees for politics and I do ask all of them and they agree that things like this, uh, sustainability, which are already mandatory in many EEC countries, 
uh, haven't we haven't really latched onto that yet. And and but sooner or later, we people are going to insist that you you have a whole of life a, a approach to to recycling that you you you've, and and to and to fixing things. So if you make things that can't be disassembled and fixed, that sooner or later that'll be socially unacceptable. And then what happens at the end of the product cycle? Can you? It's going to become more and more the manufacturer's responsibility to get rid of the rubbish mm. or, re or reuse the rubbish. So, so they are trends. I'm not sure myself what exactly the implications of that are, but probably now is a good time to be thinking about that if you're thinking five or ten years ahead. Have you got any examples of market responsiveness to uh, automation with any of the companies that you've worked with? The drivers, the main drivers we've seen have been um, programmability so that you can make what exactly what the customer wants. You don't just give the brochure and say, we make these five versions of this and you can take that or leave it. So that's definitely been one of the drivers. Um, another though, from the, manu from the factory owners, you know, the business owners, the manufacturing business owners point of view is, uh, where's our workforce coming from? You know, there's very few People who spend eight hours a day lifting products up or welding products or, or putting them on pallets who are going to go home that night and persuade their children that this is the job for them. That's not what children are being, uh, uh, children are not going to aspire to do those jobs in the future. So even, and even in welding, which is a pretty skilled job, um, there are many areas such as in pipeline welding in deserts where people just won't do that work anymore or fewer people do that work anymore and Australia and New Zealand traditionally always filled those sorts of unpopular jobs with immigration well immigrants are less inclined to do that work as well and especially not for the second generation they particularly aspire for their kids to get an education so so where's our labour going to come from in the future is another another issue um, and uh, yes yeah, so flexibility labour Quality is often a driver. It's very hard for a human being, you know, to maintain quality when they're tired or if they've been there for a long time. Um, certif certification systems are increasingly required, requiring manufacturers not just to, you know, to, to prove that they have a manufacturing process and, and a monitoring process, a documented monitoring process in place which demonstrates the quality and that often requires more automation than people might have now. So there's quite a few different drivers. What do you reckon are some of the differences in the market uh, dynamics between New Zealand and Australia that would equate to differences in automation adoption? Yes, I don't, don't feel that much of an expert in what's happening in New Zealand. What, what I have observed, uh, New Zealand's very... Uh, ag has a very strong agricultural sector. So there's a lot of fabrication of things like uh, stainless steel for dairy and for wine, for that matter, uh, or especially for wine maybe. Um, and But then you have another example of Fisher and Paykel, for example. Um, uh, so, so it's a pretty diverse economy, but certainly I'll say agriculturally heavy. Um, in Australia, you're mining heavy, so there's an awful lot of mining automation. Some of which we've done to get to get rid of dangerous jobs underground, for example. Um, both countries, I think, are desperately searching for the competitive edge that allows you to export. You know, I think the 
domestic markets in both countries is probably not enough. Um, even with large infrastructure programs, it's still not really enough. So uh, both both are searching for exports, and in Australia, I think biomedical has been pretty pretty kind. Um, but also, as, as we talked about earlier, various niche markets that people where you can afford the transport costs because the niche is being satisfied. What skills do you need within a company to effectively adopt automation? Uh, there's the immediate skills of if you install modern equipment, who's going to maintain it? Now, suppliers might do that for you. Um, but bearing in mind that anybody can buy a piece of piece of equipment, like we were talking earlier on, you can buy a robot from seven hundred companies. So, but who? But uh, so that's easy. But using it more cost effectively than your competitors, that requires engineering input. So, and you can see that with say the cost of a robot installation might only be one third or one quarter. Only one third or one quarter of the cost might be the bits. It's all the stuff around it that has to be tailored to suit your up and downstream processes. And you really want, I think there's a tendency to, for companies to subcontract that out rather than have that in-house expertise. Because your circumstances as an SME are changing all the time. Parts are changing, customers are changing, requirements are changing. So you need to have in-house expertise or, or at least access to nearby expertise as opposed to expertise in Sweden or somewhere uh, to allow you to continue to use flexible equipment flexibly. So there's, it, there's an upskilling, um, definitely, um, and a trained workforce that that, and, and that's the trained workforce that will be there in the future, whereas the, 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 uh, the low-value-adding workforce is increasingly people are not, not wanting to do those sorts of jobs. So, so is that – not sure that answers your question. I mean, another thing that's needed is the strategic approach. You, you need to know, well, where's your company going and is, this, is introducing a piece of automation part of a plan, part of an integrated plan from design to delivery of products – and have you got the space? Have you got the facilities? Have you got the the, the digital, um, the telecommun, you know, the communications knowledge within your company to know how to make money from things like Industry 4.0 and so on? Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, what would a integrated, a fully integrated factory look like? Well, it would look like a seamless um, joining of design to manufacturing to parts ordering. There'd hardly be any work in progress. You'd be making stuff when you needed it and not before. Uh, right through to palletising packaging. Um, I remember one company telling me our first customer's the driver of the truck because you've got to fit all this stuff on a truck and it's, say, it's, say it's for a house. So on that truck there are there are beams, there's guttering, there's downpipe and, it's, and you want all that to be right and to fit on the on the truck and for it not to be damaged. And then the customer at the other end wants to receive everything in good condition uh, and with the right dimensions uh, at the right time. So it's a continuous seamless process from the design to the delivery to the customer. And there were things like Industry 4.0, I haven't seen this in practice, but the, what's, what one of the things Industry 4.0 is supposed to be delivering is the monitoring of the product after you've delivered it so that you can with the with the low cost of sensors and with uh, um, the Internet of Things, uh, you can theoretically at least uh, 
keep track of how your product's performing in the marketplace and feed information back to you so that you can make better ones or work out where the weaknesses are and fix them. I think that, that last that last point I'm making is very new. I don't think we can see much of that actually happening yet, but uh, you can see how it might well be uh, quite, quite an advantage. You mentioned health and safety and you mentioned skills shortage. Yes. What do you think are, the, are going to be the key drivers of change uh, towards greater automation? I think um, this is very uh, subjective judgment, but I think... I think it's likely to be flexibility. I think everybody wants flexibility. They want fit for purpose for their particular purpose. You can, and you can see that almost as a culture within society, whether it's clothes or food or housing. People no longer, uh, people want something that, uh, that they've had, and even cars, which is as close to a sausage factory as you can get, but you can design your own car, your own colour, your own decor, you, you, you choose your engine, you know, there's, there's, so the, the customised design uh, I think is, a, is going to be a big driver and it's really very hard to do that without automation but it has to be the right type of, it has to be very flexible automation and you've got to solve the programming time type costs involved whether it's a robot or anything else, you can't spend all your time programming for one product. I mean the 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 um, the golden fleece. You know the the ultimate is the, the economic production of one piece. So we're a fair way off that yet, but that's what the market's probably going to demand, and that will you know, smaller and smaller production runs uh, tailored to individual customers' needs. I'd, I'd say would be one of the very important drivers in the long run. This was such a great conversation today. It highlights how our New Zealand metals industry really needs to be preparing for such technological advances. After all, as Albert Einstein said, ultimate automation will make our modern industry as primitive and as outdated as the Stone Age man looks to us today. Food for thought till we meet next time. So hit subscribe and if you liked what you heard today, please like, review or share with any metalheads you know. Let's spread the word. Hi, it's Holger again. If you liked what you heard today, then consider joining our Automation Innovation Cluster. We formed this group of like-minded members because newer developments are changing the equation when it comes to automation of fabrication processes. And we want to make sure our members can take advantage of them. As part of this Innovation Cluster, you'll have access to our Productivity Assessment Program for Fabricators, as well as exclusive opportunities to network, attend training and more. So get in touch, my details are in the show notes.